Hello and welcome to episode number 99 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, July 26th, 2010. Today on the Agro Innovations Podcast, we will be talking about the book Ecological Imperialism, which was written by Alfred W. Crosby. Alfred Crosby joined me for a brief interview. He did not have much time. His answers to some of my questions were brief. So what I have decided to do with that interview is mix some of Alfred Crosby's responses to my questions with some readings from his book, Ecological Imperialism. This is a great book with some great and interesting arguments, and arguments that I think are very relevant to the themes of the Agro-Innovations podcast. So I think it's important for people to understand the arguments of Alfred Crosby's book and to reflect on them. One of the fundamental questions that this book seeks to answer is why Europeans were successful in certain parts of the world and not others. Let me read a passage from Alfred Crosby's book. Europeans, a division of Caucasians distinctive in their politics and technologies, rather than their physiques, live in large numbers and nearly solid blocks in northern Eurasia from the Atlantic to the Pacific. They occupy much more territory there than they did a thousand or even five hundred years ago. But that is the part of the world in which they have lived throughout their recorded history, and there they have expanded in the traditional way, into contiguous areas. They also compose the great majority in the populations of what I shall call the Neo-Europes, lands thousands of kilometers from Europe and from each other. Australia's population is almost all European in origin, and that of New Zealand is about nine-tenths European. In the Americas north of Mexico, there are considerable minorities of Afro-Americans and Mestizos, but over 80% of the inhabitants of this area are of European descent. In the Americas, south of the Tropic of Capricorn, the population is also dominantly white. The inhabitants of the Deep South in Brazil range between 85 and 95 percent European, and Uruguay, next door, is also approximately nine-tenths white. Some estimations put Argentina at about 90 percent, and others at close to 100 percent European. If we consider all the peoples of that vast wedge of the continent poleward of the Tropics of Capricorn, we see that the great majority are European. Even if we accept the highest estimations of Mestizo, Afro-American, and Amerindian populations, more than three of every four Americans in the southern temperate zone are entirely of European ancestry. I asked Alfred Crosby to explain the definition of a Neo-Europe in my interview with him. This was his response. A Neo-Europe is a name I've hitched to various places settled by Europeans, which turned out to be very, very successful because European plants, animals, and Europeans themselves function very successfully there. These are usually in the uh, temperate zone, the United States, Canada, Argentina, Chile, Australia, New Zealand. But the Europeans never really quite figured out how, how to live like Europeans, how to function like Europeans in the, in the tropics. Colonies in the tropics were, didn't usually last more than a century or so. But in the, in the uh, what is now, for instance, the United States, European ways were so su- successful that, well, I just summed, summed it all up in this one stark phrase, the, the Neo-Europe. The Neo-Europes are intriguing for reasons other than the disharmony between their locations and the racial and cultural identity of most of their people. These lands attract the attention 
of most of humanity because of their food surpluses. They compose the majority of those very few nations on this earth that consistently, decade after decade, export very large quantities of food. Alfred Crosby continues to discuss migration to the Neo-Europes. Between 1820 and 1930, well over 50 million Europeans migrated to the Neo-European lands overseas. That number amounts to approximately one-fifth of the entire population of Europe at the beginning of that period. Why such an enormous movement of peoples across such vast distances? What was the nature of the Neo-European pull? The attractions were many, of course, and they varied from place to place in these newfound lands. But underlying them all, and coloring, coloring them and shaping them in ways such that a reasonable man might be persuaded to invest capital and even the lives of his family in neo-European adventures were factors perhaps best described as biogeographical. Where are the neo-Europes? Geographically, they are scattered, but they are similar in latitudes. They are all completely, or at least two-thirds, in the temperate zones, north and south, which is to say that they have roughly similar climates. The plants on which Europeans historically have depended for food and fiber, and the animals on which they have depended for food, fiber, power, leather, bone, and manure, tend to prosper in warm to cool climates with the annual precipitation of 50 to 150 centimeters. These conditions are characteristics of all the Neo-Europes, or at least of their fertile parts in which Europeans have settled densely. One would expect an Englishman, Spaniard, or German to be attracted chiefly to places where wheat and cattle would do well, and that indeed has proved to be the case. There is a striking paradox here. The parts of the world that today, in terms of population and culture, are most like Europe are most far away from Europe. Indeed, they are across major oceans. And although they have similar in climate to Europe, they have indigenous floras and faunas different from those of Europe. The regions that today export more foodstuffs of European provenance, grains and meats, than any other land on earth had no wheat, barley, rye, cattle, pigs, sheep, or goats whatsoever 500 years ago. The resolution of this paradox is simple to state, though difficult to explain. North America, southern South America, Australia, and New Zealand are far from Europe in distance, but have climates similar to hers, and European flora and fauna, including human beings, can thrive in these regions if the competition is not too fierce. In general, the competition has been mild. On the Pampa, Iberian horses and cattle have driven back the guanaco and ray. In North America, speakers of Indo-European languages have overwhelmed speakers of Algonquin and Muscogeehan and other Amerindian languages. In the Antipodes, the dandelions and housecats of the Old World have marched forward, and kangaroo crass and kiwis have retreated. Why? Perhaps Europeans have triumphed because of their superiority in arms, organization, and fanaticism. But what in heaven's name is the reason that the sun never sets on the empire of the dandelion. Perhaps the success of European imperialism has a biological, an ecological component. To understand this ecological component, Alfred Crosby spends some time on the supercontinent of Pangaea and the separation of that supercontinent. I asked Alfred Crosby about the significance of Pangaea. 
Well, I always like to have a good, solid place to start from. And uh, Pangea is a wonderful place to start from because it's so much of the book has to do with uh, the uh, contact between separated continents, separated by oceans. And with Pangea, oh, I don't know, 200 million years ago, when I, all the continents were one. Alfred Crosby elaborates on the significance of this in his book. He writes, The breakup of Pangaea and the decentralization of the processes of evolution began 180 or 200 million years ago. For almost all of the time since, except for a few instances counter to the dominant trend, centrifugal forces have prevailed in the evolution of life forms. Our current reconstitution of Pangaea by means of ship and aircraft is a matter of human culture and the careening, accelerating, breakneck beat of technology. 40,000 years ago, humans were in occupation of the old world from Europe and Siberia to the southern tip of Africa and the islands of the East Indies. Yet there were whole continents and myriads of islands we had not explored or settled. We had not yet passed over one of the expanding, deep water seams of Pangaea. These early humans were about to do something of the same magnitude as moving from Earth to another planet. They were about to leave a world, the riven core of Pangaea, Eurasia plus Africa, of life forms with which their ancestors had lived for millions of years, and go to worlds where neither humans nor hominids nor apes of any kind had ever existed, worlds dominated by plants, animals, and micro-life whose forms had often diverged sharply from the patterns of life in the old world. Some 10,000 years ago, all the larger ice caps melted, excepting those in Antarctica and Greenland, and the oceans rose to approximately their present levels, inundating the plains that had connected Australia with New Guinea and Alaska with Siberia, and isolating the avant-garde of humanity in their new homelands. From that time, until the Europeans made a common practice of sailing across the seams of Pangaea, these people lived and developed in complete or nearly complete isolation. One of the momentary respites from divergent evolution since the breakup of Pangaea had come to an end. And for the next few millennia, genetic drift and, for the first time, cultural drift were in perfect consonance with the continental drift. Crosby then goes on to write about the Neolithic Revolution. He says, Then humanity made its next great lunge, not a matter of geographical migration, but of cultural mutation. The Neolithic Revolution, or more accurately, revolutions. According to classic definition, the Neolithic Revolution began when humans started to grind and polish rather than chip their stone tools into final form, and it ended as they learned to smelt metal in quantity and work it into tools that stayed sharp longer and were more durable than their stone equivalents. In between, the story goes, humans invented agriculture, domesticated all the animals of our barnyard and meadow, learned to write, built cities, and created civilization. I asked Alfred Crosby about the significance of the Neolithic Revolution. Well, farming is so important. Farming is, is the basis of the... Sometimes I think it's the basis of everything. It's certainly the basis of the way we live. The Neolithic Revolution, in all its aspects, the growth of states, the growth of technology, etc., etc., is all based on, rooted in farming. Alfred Crosby compares the Neolithic Revolution in the Old World to that of the Americas. The peoples of the New World had their own Neolithic Revolution or revolutions, most spectacularly in Mesoamerica and Andean America. But theirs, relative to that in the Old World, began slowly, accelerated tardily, 
and spread as though the Western Hemisphere were somehow less hospitable to the techniques and arts of civilization than the Eastern. When the conquistadores arrived with iron and steel, the people of the high Amer Indian cultures were still in the early stages of metallurgy. They used metals for ornaments and idols, not for tools. Amer Indians were better at domesticating animals than Aborigines, who domesticated only the dog, but they were amateurs compared with peoples of the Eastern Hemisphere. Compare the American assemblage of livestock, dogs, llamas, guinea pigs, and some fowl, with that of the Old World. Dogs, cats, cattle, horses, pigs, sheep, goats, reindeer, water buffalo, chickens, geese, ducks, honeybees, and more. The Amer Indians and Aborigines came late to the full Neolithic Revolution, for whatever reasons, and suffered for it. The Old World Neolithic Revolution, for all its dazzling advances in metallurgy, the arts, writing, politics, and city life, was at its base a matter of the direct control and exploitation of many species for the sake of one, Homo sapiens. In the Neolithic, humans would reach out to grasp and manipulate whole divisions of the biota around them. Old world peoples conscripted wheat, barley, peas, lentils, donkeys, sheep, pigs, and goats about 9,000 years ago. Cattle maintained their independence for a few more millennia, and camels and horses for even longer. But by 4,000 or 5,000 years ago, the humans of southwestern Asia and environs had completed the domestication of all but a few of the crop plants and livestock most crucially important to old world civilization, then and now. Crosby uses the Sumerians, one of the first great civilizations, as an example. The Sumerians were great and powerful, and they knew wherein lay their greatness and power, in their crops of barley, peas, and lentils, and in their herds of cattle, sheep, pigs, and goats. In sum, all articles added together, the Sumerians had food, fiber, leather, bone, fertilizer, and draft animals in greater and more dependable quantity than any other people in the world. The Middle East's farmers and village dwellers also unintentionally cultivated villains of the animal world, creatures who utilized human garbage and trash for food and shelter and entered into direct competition with humans for the food that humans raised and stored. Hunters and gatherers had their personal vermin, lice, fleas, and internal parasites, but few of the nomad humans remained long enough in one spot in sufficient numbers to accumulate filth enough to enable mice, rats, roaches, houseflies, and worms to multiply into armies. The farmers, however, did just that, and in doing so invented the animal equivalents of weeds, varmints. The vermin were more than just burglars, they carried diseases. For example, we know that rats are carriers of plague, typhus, relapsing fever, and other infections, and we can be sure that they, and other varmints as well, played similar roles in the past. The vermin of civilization were not all visible. In fact, the worst were invisible. The old world civilized people had herds of cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, horses, and so forth. They lived with their creatures, sharing with them the same air, water, and general environment, and therefore many of the same diseases. The synergistic effects of these different species living cheek by jowl, humans, quadrupeds, fowl, and the parasites of each, produced new diseases and variants of old ones. Pox viruses oscillated back and forth between humans and cattle to produce smallpox and cowpox. Dogs, cattle, and humans exchanged viruses or combined different viruses to produce three new maladies for each other, distemper, rinderpest, and measles. Humans, pigs, horses, and domesticated fowl in contact with wild birds shared and still share influenza, periodically and perpetually producing new virulent strains for each other. By 3,000 years ago, give or take a millennium or so, Superman, 
the human of old world civilization had appeared on earth. He was not a figure with bulging muscles, nor necessarily with bulging forehead. He knew how to raise surpluses of food and fiber. He knew how to tame and exploit several species of animals. He knew how to use the wheel to spin out a thread, or make a pot, or move cumbersome weights. His fields were plagued with thistles and his granaries with rodents. He had sinuses that throbbed in wet weather, a recurring problem with dysentery, an enervating burden of worms, an impressive assortment of genetic and acquired adaptations to diseases and anciently endemic to old world civilizations, and an immune system of such experience and sophistication as to make him the template for all humans who would be tempted or obliged to follow the path he pioneered some eight to 10,000 years ago. Alfred Crosby looks in detail at the story of the Norse explorers who attempted to colonize North America, but were unsuccessful. He uses this example to support his thesis of the ecological causes for European imperialism. I asked Alfred Crosby to talk about the failure of the Norse explorers in North America. The Norse explorers were the Scandinavians sailing out of what is now Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and of course uh, a little bit later out of uh, Iceland. They had a period of uh, a period around 900, 1000 AD of uh, immense activity in which they not only sailed all over the North Pacific, uh, North Pacific, the North Atlantic, but uh, encircled Europe, uh, poked around in the Mediterranean as well as uh, the Arctic Ocean. They were unsuccessful for one reason. They, they didn't sail from, those who came to America did not sail from uh, centers of uh, dense population and technological sophistication and so on. They sailed from Iceland and Greenland. And uh, this not only meant that they didn't have a lot to bring with, bring with them in the way of technology, agriculture, and so on, but it, they didn't have many people. It was just an immense, immensely heroic effort, but one which really is quite, quite insignificant in, in its long-range influence. Several hundred years later, Europeans in the Iberian Peninsula did begin to experience some success in colonization of foreign lands. I asked Alfred Crosby about the significance of the islands in the mid-Atlantic to European ecological imperialism. Well, the Europeans in the Renaissance, in the late Middle Ages, in the Renaissance, the Europeans were reaching out. The Turks were rising up eastern Mediterranean, so there wasn't going to be a lot reaching out in that direction. So the Europeans reached out into this largely unexplored, well, almost totally unexplored ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. But they didn't jump from Spain to the West Indies. They first went out to the islands of the eastern Atlantic Ocean, like the Azores, the Canaries. Madeira. That's where they they got their practice, so to speak. Then they went to the went to the New World. The Canary Islands provide an interesting case study. They were one of the few islands that had a human population before the arrival of Europeans. This indigenous population was called the Guanches. Crosby writes: The Guanches deserve more attention than they have received. They were, with the possible exception of the Arawaks of the West Indies, the first people to be driven over the cliff of extinction by modern imperialism. The Guanches died off from a multitude of causes. They lost their land and with it their ways to make a living. There can be no simple explanation for their extinction, but no single influence can have been more destructive than disease, which works its way through a susceptible population, irresistibly taking advantage of every flaw, 
choking out lives day and night, season after season, spreading like a noxious weed over bare and fertile soil. As soon as the Europeans conquered a given island in the Canaries, they set about transforming it in accordance with their plans to become wealthy. They sold off the orchard to the European market, and as much grain, vegetables, timber, skins, and tallow, and as many guanches as could find buyers. They Europeanized their island, importing species of old-world plants and animals that were already doing well in Mediterranean lands. Several of the more important of these species, dogs, goats, pigs, and probably sheep, barley, peas, and probably wheat, were already present. The Europeans added cattle, asses, camels, rabbits, pigeons, chickens, partridges and ducks, as well as grapevines, melons, pears, apples, and most important of all, sugar. Sugar was the catalyst of social and ecological change. The archipelago's forests gave way to cane fields, pasture, and bare slopes as the trees fell before the need for timber, for the many new buildings, and especially for fuel to boil the fluid squeezed from the harvested cane. Deforestation encouraged erosion, made the flow of streams a matter of flood or famine. Foreign plants, often weeds by European definition, rushed onto the lands bared by European axe plow and herds, and by what can accurately be called European erosion. The Europeans brought with them fellow life forms, their extended family of plants, animals, and microlife, descendants, most of them, of organisms that humans had first domesticated or that had first adapted to living with humans in the hearthlands of the old world civilization. Crosby defines these organisms as portmanteau biota. I asked Alfred Crosby about portmanteau biota. Well, portmanteau biota are uh, plants that, uh, well, there were uh, elements that worked very successfully in the New York Europe's portmanteau biota, wheat, uh, horses, cattle. Crosby elaborates in his book, The Europeans crossed the waters to the Canaries, as to the Azores and Madeiras, with a scaled-down, simplified version of the biota of Western Europe in this case, of the Mediterranean littoral. This portmanteau biota was crucial to their successes in these island groups and to their successes and failures later and elsewhere. Where it worked, where enough of its members prospered and propagated to create versions of Europe, however incomplete and distorted, Europeans themselves prospered and propagated. A brief analysis of the record of European attempts to found colonies during the medieval and renaissance period suggests the following is essential for successful planting of European colonies of settlement beyond the boundaries of the home continent. First, the prospective settlement had to be a place where land and climate were similar to those in some parts of Europe. Europeans and their commensal and parasitic comrades were not good at adapting to truly alien lands and climates, but they were very good at constructing new versions of Europe out of suitable real estate. Second, the prospective colonies had to be in lands remote from the Old World, so that there would be no or few predators or disease organisms adapted to preying on Europeans and their plants and animals. Also, remoteness assured that the indigenous humans would have no or few such servant species as horses and cattle. That is, the invaders would have the assistance of a larger extended family than the natives, an advantage probably more important than superior military technology, certainly so in the long run. Likewise, remoteness assured that the indigenes would be without defenses against the diseases the invaders inevitably would bring with them. The Canary Islands, though not more than a few days' voyage from the mainland, met the qualification of remoteness because the Berbers of the mainland opposite knew little about seamanship and the Guanches less. This bizarre flaw in the Guanche culture kept them in the Stone Age, a disadvantage when they met European iron and steel and it left them naked to their worst enemies, horses and pathogens of peste and modora 
and surely a number of other mainland diseases. Although tropical Africa and Asia were known by Europeans and accessible to them, the Europeans were unsuccessful in establishing early colonies in the same way they were successful in the Neo-Europes. I asked Alfred Crosby about this. Well, the chief barrier in Africa to Western Europeans was disease, the uh, malaria, yellow fever, and a half dozen, half dozen, a full dozen other deadly diseases. It was very difficult, it made it very difficult for Europeans to get more than a toll in, on the coast of uh, Africa. Crosby asks the question, what enabled the white intruders to make neo-European cities of the harbors and shorelines of Australia, North America, and New Zealand? Any respectable theory that attempts to explain the Europeans' demographic advance has to provide explanations for at least two phenomena. The first is the demoralization and often the annihilation of the indigenous population of the Neo-Europes. The obliterating defeat of these populations was not simply a matter of European technological superiority. The Europeans who settled in temperate South Africa seemingly had the same advantages as those who'd settled in Virginia and New South Wales, and yet how different their histories have been. The Bantu peoples of South Africa have prospered because they have survived military conquest, avoided the conquerors, or became their indispensable servants, and in the long run, because they reproduced in greater numbers than the whites. In contrast, why did so few of the natives of the Neo-Europe survive? Second, we must explain the stunning, even awesome success of European agriculture in the Neo-Europes. The white pioneers of the United States and Canada would never have characterized their progress as easy. Their lives were filled with danger, deprivation, and unremitting labor. But as a group, they always succeeded in taming whatever portion of temperate North America they wanted within a few decades, and usually a good deal sooner. These phenomena were so vast they strike one as suprahuman, as manifestations of forces impinging on human affairs that are more powerful, undeviating, and pervasive than human will. Let us consider three general kinds of life forms that often pass over the seams of Pangaea and usually prospered in the colonies not with but often without help and even despite European actions, weeds, feral animals, and pathogens associated with humanity. Is there a pattern in the histories of these groups that suggests an overall explanation for the phenomenon of the demographic triumph of Europeans in the Neo-Europes? Crosby talks in depth about weeds, which he dedicates an entire chapter to. I found this chapter a very fascinating study, Crosby writes, we know very little about weeds in America in the 15th and 16th century. The conquistadores paid little attention to farming, less to weeds as such, and the historians who traveled with or followed after Cortes and the rest rarely took notice of the malas hierbas, but we know they were there. European crops and other desirable plants flourished in the Indies even when disgracefully neglected by farmers gone crazy for gold and conquest. So we can be sure that the imported weeds, which thrive on neglect, did very well indeed. The imported weeds must have taken over large areas in the West Indies, Mexico, and other places, because the Iberian conquest created enormous areas of disturbed ground. Forests were raised for timber and fuel to make way for new enterprises. Burgeoning herds of old-world animals grazed and overgrazed the grasslands and invaded the woodlands, and the cultivated fields of the declining Amerindian populations reverted to nature a nature whose most aggressive plants were now exotic immigrants. Friar Bartolomé de las Casas told of large herds of cattle and other European animals 
in the West Indies eating native plants down to the roots in the first half of the 16th century, followed by the spread of ferns, thistles, plantain, nettles, nightshade, sedge, and so forth, which he identified as Castilian, and yet stated were present when the Spanish arrived. It is impossible that the same species would have developed in both Castile and Española, and unlikely that they made the transatlantic passage in pre-Columbian times. It is much likelier that they were old-world colonizing species, moving in with the explorers and advancing as fast or faster than the friars. The weeds must have advanced at least as fast in central Mexico, as colossal herds of Spanish cattle and other animals, tame and feral, grazed and overgrazed, and by the end of the 16th century began in some areas to starve in the midst of the vacancies they had made. Old-world colonizing plants had not had such an opportunity since the invention of agriculture. Among the imported forage crops, the champions were white clover and the Eurasian plant Americans have arrogantly named Kentucky bluegrass. The two mixed together were called English grass. They were quite English in their preference for cool, damp climates. When English pathfinders toppled the Appalachian and proceeded into Kentucky in the last decades of the 18th century, they found white clover and bluegrass waiting for them. The plants either had crept over the mountains clinging to the coats of traders' horses and mules from Carolina, or more likely, had entered with the French in the late 17th or 18th century. Right behind white clover and Kentucky bluegrass on the list of the most aggressive floral imports were Barbary, St. John's wort, common hemp, corn cockle, and chess, plus many more. In Argentina, a similar process was underway, as Crosby writes. The usurpation of the native biota of the pampa must have been underway by the end of the 16th century, as domesticated animals from Europe arrived, thrived, and propagated into enormous herds. Their eating habits, trampling hoofs and droppings, and the seeds of the weedish plants they carried with them, as alien to America as they were themselves, altered forever the soil and flora of the pampa. A visitor, Felix de Asada, recorded in the 1780s that the vast number of livestock and the practice of burning off the dead grasses annually were eliminating the delicate plants and the taller grasses, and the resulting vacancies were not going begging. Wherever the European or half-breed pioneer threw up his little hut, mallows and thistles and such sprang up, even if there were no other such plants for thirty leagues. And it was n enough that the frontiersman frequent a road, even though alone with his horse, for these plants to rise up along its edges. The pioneer of the pampa was a sort of botanical Midas, changing the flora with his touch. What Crosby is arguing is that the arrival of Europeans to these neo-European locations created an ecological emergency. The nature of this ecological emergency was a tremendous amount of disturbance and bare ground created by the invading Europeans and their animals, and weeds were opportunistic in taking over that bare ground. This is the reason why weeds from South America and North America did not colonize Europe as successfully as the European weeds colonized the Neo-Europes. Crosby writes, Colonizing plants, weeds, can survive nearly anything but success. As they take over disturbed ground, they stabilize the soil, block the baking rays of the sun, and for all their competitiveness, make it a better place for other plants than it was before. Weeds are the red cross of the plant world. They deal with ecological emergencies. When the emergencies are over, they give way to plants that may grow more slowly, but grow taller and sturdier. In fact, weeds find it difficult to elbow into undisturbed environments, and they will usually die out if disturbance ceases. What has all this about weeds to do with European humans in the Neo-Europes? 
The simple answer is that the weeds were crucially important to the prosperity of the advancing Europeans and Neo-Europeans. The weeds, like skin transplants placed over broad areas of abraded and burned flesh, aided in healing the raw wounds that the invaders tore in the earth. The exotic plants saved newly bared topsoil from water and wind erosion and from baking in the sun. And the weeds often became essential feed for exotic livestock, as these in turn were for their masters. The colonizing Europeans who cursed their colonizing plants were wretched ingrates. A process similar to what happened with weeds also happened with European animals. The migrant Europeans could reach and even conquer, but not make colonies of settlement of these pieces of alien earth until they became a good deal more like Europe than they were when the marineros first saw them. Fortunately for the Europeans, their domesticated and lively adaptable animals were effective at initiating that change. Crosby dedicates a great deal of attention and detail to the topic of pigs. Pigs, he writes, ate practically anything of organic origin, nuts of all kind, windfall fruit, roots, grass, any animal too small to defend itself. In New England, they learn to root and thrive on clams. In Sydney, the pigs are allowed to run in the bush during the day, just giving each a cob of corn to bring it home in the evening. They feed on grasses, herbs, wild roots, native yams, on the margins of rivers and marshy grounds, and also on frogs and lizards, etc., which come their way. Healthy sows have large litters, up to ten or more piglets apiece, and with an abundance of food, pigs can increase at the velocity of funds deposited at high compound interest. Within a few years of Española's discovery, the number running wild was infinite, and all the mountains swarmed with them. They spread to the other greater Antilles and to the mainlands in the 1490s, where they continued to multiply rapidly. They followed in the footsteps of Francisco Pizarro, and were soon doubling and redoubling their numbers in the area of the conquered Incan Empire. Pigs were the favorite choice of explorers, pirates, whalers, and sealers for seeding remote islands to assure a supply of meat on the hoof for the next set of transient Europeans to come along. As a result, pigs were already running wild on islands in Rio de la Plata, on Barbados and Bermuda, on Sable Island off Nova Scotia, on the Channel Islands off California, and on islands in the Bass Strait between Tasmania and the mainland when mention of those patches of land first appears in the written record. The story is much the same for cattle, although they did not thrive everywhere quite as well as the pigs did. In the case of Argentina, cattle did very well. As Crosby writes, there is no value in belaboring the point that they adapted marvelously well to the Neo-Europes, and vice versa. We could go on at length about goats, dogs, cats, even camels, and go on further to point out the domesticated birds, chickens for instance, prospered in the Neo-Europes, but the point has already been made. Old world livestock prospered in the Neo-Europes. In fact, they did amazingly better in the Neo-Europes than in their homelands. Even undesirable animals like rats and rabbits colonized the Neo-Europes very aggressively. Neo-Europeans did not purposely introduce rats, and they have spent millions and millions of pounds, dollars, pesos, and other currencies to halt their spread, usually in vain. The same is true for several other varmints in the Neo-Europes, rabbits, for example. This seems to indicate that the humans were seldom masters of the biological changes they triggered in the Neo-Europes. They benefited from the great majority of these changes, but benefit or not, their role often was less a matter of judgment and choice than of being downstream of a bursting dam. The chapter on disease 
begins with a very unfortunate but rather appropriate quote by Adam Smith in his famous book, The Wealth of Nations. The colony of a civilized nation which takes possession either of waste country or of one so thinly inhabited that the natives easily give place to the new settlers advances more rapidly to wealth and greatness than any other human society. Historical percentages of the people that died during the epidemics of early European colonization of the New World are difficult to come by. However, as Crosby notes, evidence from modern-day cases shows that when isolation of a population ceases, decimation of that population begins. Hence the reasonable belief of the Yanomamas that white men cause illness. If the whites had never existed, disease would never have existed either. Crosby goes on to say, the isolation of the indigenes of the Americas and Australia from old world germs prior to the last few hundred years was nearly absolute. Not only did very few people of any origin cross the great oceans, but those who did must have been healthier. They would have died on the way, taking their pathogens with them. The indigenes were not without their own infections, of course. The Mara Indians had at least pinta, yaws, venereal syphilis, hepatitis, encephalitis, polio, some varieties of tu tuberculosis, and intestinal parasites, but they seem to have been without any experience with such old-world maladies as smallpox, measles, diphtheria, trachoma, whooping cough, chickenpox, bubonic plague, malaria, typhoid fever, cholera, yellow fever, dengue fever, scarlet fever, amoebic dysentery, influenza, and a number of helminthic infestations. Let us restrict ourselves to the peregrinations of one old-world pathogen in the colonies, the most spectacular one, the virus of smallpox. Smallpox, an infection that usually spreads from victim to victim by breath, was one of the most communicable of all diseases and one of the very deadliest. Smallpox first crossed the seams of Pangaea, specifically to the island of Española, at the end of 1518 or the beginning of 1519. And for the next four centuries, it played as essential a role for the advance of white imperialism overseas as gunpowder. Perhaps a more important role, because the indigenes did turn the musket and then rifle against the intruders, but smallpox very rarely fought on the side of the indigenes. The intruders were usually immune to it, as they were to other old-world childhood diseases, most of which were new beyond the oceans. The malady quickly exterminated a third or half of the Arawaks on Española, and almost immediately leaped the straits to Puerto Rico and other great Antilles, accomplishing the same devastation there. It crossed from Cuba to Mexico and joined Cortez's forces in the person of a sick black soldier, one of the few of the invaders not immune to the infection. The disease exterminated a large fraction of the Aztecs and cleared a path for the aliens to the new heart of Tenochtitlan and to the founding of New Spain. Racing ahead of the conquistadores, it soon appeared in Peru, killing a large portion of the subjects of the Inca, killing the Inca himself and the successor he had chosen. Civil war and chaos followed, and then Francisco Pizarro arrived. The miraculous triumphs of that conquistador and of Cortes whom he so successfully emulated, are in large part the triumphs of the virus of smallpox. This first recorded pandemic in the New World may have reached as far as the American Neo-Europes. The Amerindian population was denser than it was to be again for centuries, and utterly susceptible to smallpox. 
Canoeists of the Calusa tribe often crossed from Florida to Cuba to trade in the early 16th century and certainly could have carried smallpox home into the continent with them. And peoples in at least sporadic contact with each other ring the Gulf of Mexico. The Mississippi, with villages rarely so much as a day's journey apart along its banks, at least as far north as the Ohio, would have given the disease access to the entire interior of the continent. As for the Pampa, the pandemic certainly spread through the Incan Empire to present-day Bolivia, and from there settlements with easy access to each other were sprinkled across Paraguay and down along the Rio de la Plata and its tributaries to the Pampa. Smallpox may have ranged from the Great Lakes to the Pampa in the 1520s and 1530s. Smallpox is a disease with seven-league boots. Its effects are terrifying. The fever and pain, the swift appearance of pustules that sometimes destroy the skin and transform the victim into a gory horror, the astounding death rates, up to one-fourth, one-half or more with the worst strains, the healthy flea, leaving the ill behind to face certain death and often take the disease along with them. The incubation period is 10 to 14 days, long enough for the ephemerally healthy carrier to flee for long distances on foot, by canoe, or later on horseback, to people who know nothing of the threat he represents, and there to infect them and inspire others newly charged with the virus to flee to infect new innocents. The first recorded epidemic of smallpox in British or French North America erupted among the Algonquins of Massachusetts in the early 1630s. Whole towns of them were swept away, in some not so much as one soul escaping destruction, wrote William Bradford of Plymouth Plantation. The disease raged through New England, on west into the St. Lawrence, Great Lakes region, and from there no one knows how much farther. Smallpox whipsawed back and forth through New York and surrounding areas in the 1630s and 1640s, reducing the populations of the Huron and Iroquois confederations by an estimated 50%. When the French penetrated into the hinterlands behind the coast of the Gulf of Mexico, where De Soto had fought so many battles with so many peoples, they found so few to oppose their intrusion. And the decline in American Indian numbers continued. Indeed, it probably accelerated. In six years, the last of the mound builders, the Natchez, with their pyramid-topped temples and their supreme leader, the Great Sun, diminished by a third. One of the Frenchmen wrote, unintentionally echoing the Protestant John Winthrop, Touching these savages, there is a thing that I cannot omit to remark to you, is that it appears visibly that God wishes that they yield their place to new peoples. The exchange of infectious diseases between the Old World and its American and Australasian colonies has been wondrously one-sided. As one-sided in one way as the exchanges of peoples, weeds, and animals. Australasia, as far as science can tell us, has exported not one of its human diseases to the outside world, presuming that it has any uniquely its own. Venereal syphilis may be the New World's only important disease export, and it has, for all its notoriety, never stopped population growth in the old world. The unevenness of the exchange operated to the overwhelming advantage of the European invaders and to the crushing disadvantage of the peoples whose ancestral homes were on the losing side of the seams of Pangaea. In many ways, New Zealand was a prototypical Neo-Europe. I asked Alfred Crosby about the significance of New Zealand to his narrative. Everything has worked out, so I've been to New Zealand a couple of times. And uh, Europeans and their plants and their animals and their technology and their automobiles and their 
plows and their ships just work out beautifully. If you had complete knowledge of the world in uh, 1492 and you wanted to go found a colony someplace or other, you'd start in New Zealand. Then you'd try the New England and uh, Brazil and so on. One of the most important factors explaining the success of the European portmanteau biota was the lack of megafauna in the Neo-Europes. Alfred Crosby talked about this in our interview. Well, one of the chief obstacles to European settlement, for instance, in Africa, were the big animals, well, low lions, tigers, rhinos, etc., etc., etc. And uh, in the Americas, in, in Australia and New Zealand, you had very few of these big animals, because not because they went there in the first place. They were there, but they all went extinct. Oh, roughly speaking, about ten to 15,000 years ago. Not all of them, but we still have bison. The majority of them were extinct. For instance, in North America, approximately 35 genera, very roughly speaking, about 100 species of these megafauna went extinct, made settlement by colonists much, much easier than it would have been otherwise. We had to worry about, when we put our sheep out to pasture, we had to worry about certainly uh, carnivores, but we didn't have to worry about tigers and lions. We had to worry about wolves and uh, panthers, not which are more as companions, perhaps, but a lot easier to deal with them these, than these giant carnivores. One of the most important factors in the success of the portmanteau biota is so simple that it is easy to overlook. Its members did not function alone, but as a team. Sometimes they worked against each other, as in the case of farmers and hessian flies, but more often they helped each other, at least in the long run. Sometimes the mutual support is obvious, as with Europeans importing honeybees to impollinate their crops. Sometimes the connection is obscure. In the Great Plains, the whites and their hirelings killed off almost all of the buffalo, encouraging the spread of venereal pathogens, a physician serving the Sioux at Fort Peck toward the end of the last century assessed the tragedy of venereal infections among their women, not simply as a result of immorality, but as the result of a more general change. They were chased till the disappearance of the buffalo. For a clearer example of the portmanteau biota as a mutual aid society, let us consider the history of forage grasses, because these weeds were vital to the spread of European livestock, and therefore to Europeans themselves. There are about 10,000 grass species, but a mere 40 account for 99% of the sown grass pastures of the world. Few, if any, of the 40 are native to the great grasslands outside of the world. 24 of the 40 occur naturally and have apparently grown for a very long time in an area comprising Europe minus northern Scandinavia plus North Africa and the Middle East. It is an area so small that at one time most of it was within the Roman Empire. Our most important forage grasses are native to that general part of the world where most of our grasses were first tamed and where they have grazed on these grasses since the first millennia of the Neolithic. The mutual adaptation of these grasses and grazers extends even further back than the Neolithic. The family Bovidae, which includes cattle, sheep, goats, buffalo, and bison, arose and evolved during the Pliocene and Pleistocene in northern Eurasia. Many members migrated to Africa, a few to North America, but none to South America or Australasia. For thousands of years, old-world grazing animals and certain grasses, plus the other weeds of Eurasia and North Africa, have been adapting to each other. The old-world quadrupeds, 
when transported to America, Australia, and New Zealand, stripped away the local grasses and forbs, and these, which in most cases had been subjected only to light grazing before, were often slow to recover. In the meantime, the Old World weeds, particularly those from Europe and nearby parts of Asia and Africa, swept in and occupied the bare ground. They were tolerant of open sunlight, bare soil, and close cropping, and of being constantly trod upon, and they possessed a number of means of propagation and spread. For instance, often their seeds were equipped with hooks to catch on the hides of passing livestock, or were tough enough to survive the trip down their stomachs, to be deposited somewhere farther down the path. When the livestock returned for a meal the next season, it was there. When the stockman went out in search of his stock, they were there too. Felix de Asada observed this process underway in the Pampa as gauchos and huge herds of European quadrupeds subjected the local flora to trauma it had never known in the heyday of the guanaco and the ray, replacing the tall pastures with the soft, modern pastures by means of pata y diente, hoof and tooth. Thomas Budd, writing in 17th century Pennsylvania, saw it too. If we sprinkle but a little English hay on the land without plowing and then feed sheep on it, in a little time it will so increase that it will cover the land with English grass. It might profit us to look at the cooperation of the members of the portmanteau biota from another angle. There is little or nothing intrinsically superior about old-world organisms compared with those of the Neo-Europes. Superior, in truth, is a term that has no meaning in this context, except as one organism fits into a given ecosystem and another does not. Old-world organisms are almost always superior when the competition takes place in their home environment. Hence, the tiny number of neo-European weeds, varmints, and pathogens naturalized in the Old World, and the success of the portmanteau biota wherever colonial environments have been Europeanized. What does Europeanized mean in this context? It refers to a condition of continual disruption of plowed fields, raised forests, overgrazed pastures, and burned prairies, of deserted villages and expanding cities, of humans, animals, plants, and micro-life that have evolved separately, suddenly coming into intimate contact. It refers to an ephemeralized world in which weed species of all phyla prosper and the other forms of life are to be found in large numbers only in accidental enclaves or special parks. A few organisms native to the Neo-Europes were already in the weed category when the Europeans arrived, because every biota has life forms adapted to take advantage of the bad fortune of others, and these forms have even expanded geographically since the coming of the marineros. The success of the portmanteau biota and of its dominant member, the European human, was a team effort by organisms that had evolved in conflict and cooperation over a long time. The period of that coevolution most significant for the success overseas of this biota with sails and wheels occurred during and after the Old World Neolithic, a multi-species revolution whose aftershocks still rock the biosphere. That concludes this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this historical look at Ecological Imperialism, a book by Alfred Crosby with some excerpts from an interview that I did with him. Please comment on this and other episodes of the Agro-Innovations Podcast on the podcast page, agroinnovations.com slash podcast. This and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, visit creativecommons.org. 
Next week is the 100th episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. It will be a good one. Join us. Until then, I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. Saludos. Saludos.